attorney was present for the record. <laughs> Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Recently, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in three cases that could have a significant effect on religious freedom in this country. These cases present the question of whether the term sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity in the Civil Rights Act, which bans discrimination on the basis of sex. The chairman of the Committee for Religious Liberty, Bishop Robert McManus, joined other bishops in opposing this redefinition of the term sex in civil rights law, noting that words matter and saying that redefining sex in law would not only be an interpretive leap away from the language and intent of Title VII, it would attempt to redefine a fundamental element of humanity that is the basis of the family and would threaten religious liberty. Joining us to explain what these cases are all about is Mike Moses. Uh, Mike is Associate General Counsel here at the USCCB. He works on pro-life, marriage, and religious liberty issues. He also happens to be my neighbor here at the office, which means that I have proofread a fair bit of his work. Um, He often shows up in my door asking if I have time to read something for him. Mike, thank you so much for uh, joining us for this. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. So, yeah, I think you've set it up well. These cases, uh, the cases argued earlier this week in the Supreme Court, concern a federal statute, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that forbids workplace discrimination based on race, color, religion, national origin, and sex. Um, The employees in these cases are arguing that Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination forbids workplace discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, They generally have two theories. Um, The first theory is this. Um, If an employer fires a male employee because he dates men, but doesn't fire a female employee because she dates men, the employees argue that's sex discrimination because the male employee wouldn't have been fired but for the fact that he was male. The second theory involves a 1989 Supreme Court case called Price Waterhouse. So the plaintiff in that case was a female associate in an accounting firm who was denied partnership because she was perceived by her male colleagues as being too assertive and aggressive, um, described by her partners as macho. Um, The Supreme Court said that's unlawful sex stereotyping in violation of Title VII's ban on sex discrimination. So the employees in this case are arguing that the employer who fires an employee because of same-sex attraction or because of acting out on acting on that is also engaged in sex stereotyping. Uh, the employees make a similar argument for gender identity. Okay. For instance, if the employer fires a male employee because he wears a dress but doesn't fire a female employee who does that, then they would argue that's sex discrimination because the employee wouldn't have been fired but for the fact that he was male. And they also argue that that's sex stereotyping to expect male employees not to appear in what we would regard as women's dress. So when you say this, these cases, you're talking about the cases that the Supreme Court recently heard. Right. That, there, are, okay. there are three cases, uh, actually, uh, that the court heard this week. Two of them involve sexual orientation. And the third case involves uh, gender identity. And so in, in those cases, the court's considering how to construe 
Title VII. You know, does that ban on sex discrimination, does that include sexual orientation and gender identity or doesn't? So that's that's the question that's been teed up. So Title VII, could you just go back and explain a, in a nutshell what exactly is Title VII? Is that related okay. to the 64 Act you mentioned? Yeah, that's okay. that's part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that basically is the, is the primary federal law governing the workplace. And as okay. I mentioned it, forbids discrimination based on separate categories. And that was Congress that establishing was Congress. that law, right? Exactly. So here we have some issues with the separation of powers, right? Or We do. This is not a sexy constitutional case. This is about a statute that Congress passed over 50 years ago. And actually, that kind of dovetails with an argument that, that we've made, that, that Congress had no in, idea that it was dealing with sexual orientation or gender identity back in 1964. And that's, that's suggestive of the fact that, um, you know, that, that by prohibiting sex discrimination in employment, there was no intent to address uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. That, those are all fairly new developments. I mean, even the argument is pretty new. No one was making that claim back in 1964. So again, we have uh, the court construing a statute, not not the Constitution, but a statute. And so what the court should be doing is reading that statute, of course, and, a, and, and interpreting it in a way that's consistent with its plain language. Mm-hmm. So what what actually happened, though, to what, – what what actually happened in these cases? I mean, what, what set this up? Right. How did these get to the court? And, and I think as a – and just if you can, if you know, can add to this um, when you answer that. Is this one of these things where it's like activists have wanted sex to be sexual orientation and gender identity? So there's you have a situation where it's like advocacy groups are looking for these kinds of situations. Right. Um, yeah, there have been efforts in Congress to add sexual orientation and gender identity uh, for, uh, for years. Mm-hmm. And um, so having failed in Congress, now they are trying to get the courts to construe what's already in Title VII in a way that would make it unnecessary for them to get Congress to do anything, to amend it. So, uh, yeah, this advocacy has been stirring around for you know a long time, uh, and these claims are not unusual. It's taken a while to get to the Supreme Court, but finally the court has agreed to, uh, to hear it. Now, it used to be that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Federal Courts of Appeals used to be pretty uniform in saying sex does not include these other categories, mm-hmm. right, as you'd expect. But that uniformity began to dissolve several years ago. The EEOC first held that, um, that you know, reversed itself essentially and said, no, no, uh, Title VII does include these categories, even though it's not written into the statute. And then you had uh, some courts of appeals began to peel off. The Second Circuit, the, New, the Federal Court of Appeals based in New York, and the Seventh Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals based in Chicago, both of those held that um, sex includes sexual orientation. And, and uh, those, are two, those two cases are two of the three that are now pending in the Supreme Court. Um, the third case is out of the Sixth Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals based in Cincinnati, and um, the, that dealt with gender identity. And that case involves a funeral home director, who, want, who uh, um, a man who wanted to appear as a woman, identified as a woman and wanted to present himself that way. 
Um, the uh, case out of New York involved a um, uh, kind of unusual facts, a, a guy who was teaching people how to parachute out of planes. And, um, and then there's the case out of the uh, Seventh Circuit as well. So that's, that's how these cases bubbled up. So can I ask, so I, I was talking to my husband this morning, trying to figure out kind of like all this out, like the courts versus the, the Supreme Court versus Congress and who decides on these things. So is it unusual, I mean, that if if you have a, a statute or um, an act or a law of Congress, then shouldn't it be some, um, some regulatory, some, shouldn't it be Congress deciding what they originally meant when they passed these laws? Like why would, why would a, a court or the EEOC be determining what was meant. As you said, you mentioned earlier that 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 now mm-hmm. it's being interpreted that mm-hmm. sex meant sexual orientation and all of these things. Right. Yeah, that's that's consistent with the argument we'd make that you know Congress had no idea it was doing this. Now the other side would come back and say, well, now wait a minute, the court has found that sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination, and maybe Congress didn't have that in mind either in 1964 when it passed the Civil Rights Act, and yet. The court has held that Title VII forbids harassment based on sex or race and so on. Um, but my answer to that would be that the categories are more or less, even though the court has held that harassment is one form of discrimination, they didn't alter the fact that when it banned sex discrimination, their intent was to level the playing field as to men and women. So by, by saying that harassment is a form of sex discrimination, the court isn't deviating from that. The interest, the concern is still to make sure that there is a level playing field for men and women in the workplace. So those subsequent developments, the things that happened in courts after 1964, it doesn't scuttle the idea that this is all about treating men and women equally. Mm-hmm. Right. Rather, in this in this case that was just heard, these cases, it's more who gets to decide who is male or female, the individual or that's, the... That's coming up in the gender right. identity context, yeah. Yeah. That's correct. I mean, I, I've read some of these briefs and, and read the oral arguments, not a lawyer, but it seems to me, to my mind, the strongest argument from the other side is that you can just look at the text of the statute that forbids discrimination on the basis of sex and then after Price Waterhouse, the idea of sex, sex discrimination includes the idea of, of um, characteristics uh, and, stere- and sex stereotyping, uh, basically saying like if you are a in – the, in that particular case, my understanding is that it's a, you have a female who seems to be acting to what's considered to be too male, and so she's fired for that. Yeah, that's an instance of she's being discriminated against on the basis of sex stereotyping. So then what they're saying with this in the case of like a man who wants to date another man is, well, there's no problem with a woman dating another man. Your problem is the man dating a man. So you're stereotyping on the basis of who men and women should be attracted to. So th- that's, a, they're, they're, that's their, to me, that seems like their strongest argument. Do you think that that's probably their best argument? And how do you, what, what are the responses to that? Well, I think my response would be that what's going on in Pricewaterhouse is that the employer counted assertiveness and aggressiveness in a male employee as a virtue, but counted those same qualities as a vice 
when they were exhibited by a female employee. So that's sex discrimination because the employer can't have one set of job expectations for men and an entirely different set of expectations for women. So Price Waterhouse makes sense because assertiveness in an employee, that should either be prized or not. It shouldn't be, depend on whether you're male or female. But these cases are different. They don't, differential treatment based on sexual orientation or gender identity, that's not because an employer is treating men and women differently. And so it falls outside of that bucket, the bucket of sex discrimination that Congress, you know, in, intended to implement when it passed this law in 1964. Mm -hmm. So that would be my response to that. So in the case of, I think, the, the, the funeral home employee, mm -hmm. in that case, the man wanted to wear, when you, you, you used the word present earlier, and I think I read in that case, the man wanted to wear a dress to work. Is that, would that be an example of how the man was wanting to present? Right. Right? Right. Okay. He wanted to uh, appear as female rather than as male. Now, um, in fact, um, one thing I wanted to point out is that Congress has used the term sexual orientation and gender identity in other contexts. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the Violence Against Women Act, uh, maybe the hate crimes legislation. So Congress does know the difference between sex on the one hand and sexual orientation and gender identity on the other. And it uses those terms when it in, intends to, but they are distinct concepts. Um, now, most of our brief is devoted to explaining the bad and maybe unintended consequences if Title VII were construed to forbid differential treatment based on sexual orientation and gender identity. For example, it would compromise the ability of religious organizations to hire people who don't openly contradict the organization's mission and message. Um, it could also have an impact in the secular workplace. For example, we think religious believers could be silenced or punished even for temperate speech that's critical of same-sex relationships or gender transition procedures. I think to some extent we're already seeing that. You've probably read about uh, cases uh, under state and local laws where that's already being litigated. Um, and obviously these cases present huge First Amendment, free speech and free exercise uh, problems. And another problem is that an adverse ruling would likely migrate to other areas of law. For example, Title IX forbids sex discrimination in schools to get federal money. So to construe that to apply to sexual orientation and gender identity uh, would have, and in fact it's already having, an impact on the ability of girls and women to compete on an equal playing field. I mean, you've read stories about women being denied, uh, being deprived of uh, you know, the win in a track meet because uh, a male who says he identifies as a woman is, is competing in the same event. And there's a provision of the Affordable Care Act that forbids discrimination, sex discrimination in federally funded health programs. And we're already seeing lawsuits under that provision challenging the right of doctors not to perform and insurers not to cover gender transition procedures. So um, we're worried about the court's construction of Title VII, but we're also worried about what might happen if the court goes the wrong way on this issue, that it's gonna migrate into other areas of law, and this becomes could become a big problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe this is radically simplifying what you just said, but again, like to my mind, reading through the oral arguments, I'm thinking, well, if the other side were to win on this, I don't see how you could 
distinct how you could differentiate between the sexes without potentially discriminating against again seem to be considered to be discriminating against one or the I, other I if they right. were to win on like it seems to me like it just obliterates the possibility of even having any kind of dis, um, differentiation one example that came up is where you could use their same reasoning that I that we've used we've been discussing um, you could could apply it to the case of like showers at a facility where they're dealing working with hazardous materials so they have to take showers after work before they leave you have for obvious reasons you have one facility for the males and one for the females but if the male decides he's going to go into the women's shower area and then he's going to get fired or he should get fired um, then he could just say well if a woman were to do this were to have gone to the to this particular space uh, she wouldn't have been fired and so i'm being discriminated against based on the basis of sex stereo the, the stereotype is that we're expected to use certain facilities right mm -hmm. so i don't really see and and they want to say no no mm -hmm. no that's not the way mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't work that way but i don't really see the how it wouldn't work yeah. <laughs> like, right. I, don't yeah. under, I don't quite understand that yeah. can can you no i agree I can you get into the mind of <laughs> yeah, I think there was an attempt during argument to say, oh, no, these problems won't come up because you have to show an actual injury. But if someone's fired, yeah, yeah, that's they the are going to claim that they're injury. That is the injury. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I think uh, some you know current practices like uh, locker rooms, sex segregated locker rooms, which ensure privacy for people, I think those are uh, hard to defend, you mm -hmm. know, if the court sees uh, sexual orientation and gender identity as part of Title VII. And uh, same for dress codes. I mean, some employers have, you know, require, I mean, just even thinking about the way uh, the lawyers appeared before the court earlier this week, I mean, the men are in suits and tie, and the women are not. They're in professional attire, but, um, and they are uh, addressed as Mr. and Mrs., you know, depending on their, their biological sex. And that shouldn't become that we don't think that is mm -hmm. sex discrimination when an employer does that either. Mm. I mean, in a lot of these these locker room and facilities cases, they have to do with person claiming to be transgender. But what's striking to me is that using the reasoning of the employees' lawyers, you wouldn't even have to say you're transgender to to use the other sexes facility because you could always just you could still just go back and say i was discriminated against on the basis of a sex stereotype you wouldn't even have to claim transgender status that's that to me is what using their logic now that may not be maybe common sense you keep thinking one of these days it's going to mm -hmm. <laughs> help yeah. but maybe using it, their <laughs> reasoning maybe it never or their <laughs> argument not their logic necessarily yeah. i'm curious about the principles or the ideas or the basis of what the bishops argued in this brief. So, for example, like one thing I've read is that um, this is based on, um, you know, our position is based on like religious liberty. Of course, sure. But we know that natural law and our faith dovetail and that, you know, that science supports biological sex, right? We know that there's male and female, right? That's a religious principle, but it's also a natural law principle. So I'm curious about the arguments that that we made in the brief, and also that the that the average person who agrees with these principles can 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 
can talking points for the backyard barbecue or like that dovetail with what we're arguing in this brief that that people can share with people who ask questions about uh, the Catholic Church's position on these issues. Yeah. Well, one of the things we, um, those are good points. One of the things we pointed out in the brief is that the gender identity issue, you know, when a man says, I identify as a woman or a woman says, I identify as a man, um, those are actually, I think, complex problems, you know, and there is a need for, um, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on that, on those problems, but you know, there's a need for some sort of help, some sort of intervention to help the person, counseling of some kind, you know, some kind of psychological treatment. And so I think the jury is very much out on how to deal with those problems. I think, you know, there are some physicians who say, you're not doing any favor for people who claim to be transgender when you are going along with that. But what, what should be happening is that the person needs uh, counseling and treatment. Uh, so that they will be comfortable with their own biological sex. Um, so, and we cite some of that in the briefs that we filed. So, yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I think that's a very, uh, I think it's a, it's a complex problem. And uh, so we don't want the courts in a kind of ham-handed way to say, oh, yeah, gender identity is protected, um, as if that's a kind of uh, freestanding category. And, and most of the categories in the law, frankly, I mean, they're, they deal with immutable characteristics, right? I mean, we're dealing with race and sex, um, national origin. Those are things that people can't change. The only characteristic in the Civil Rights Act that's not immutable is religion. Religious belief and practice, of course, uh, is not an immutable characteristic, but... um, So did did our... um, Then the bishops are making the argument in the brief that based on immutable characteristics and non-immutable, so... Based on you know science, but I mean, of course, our expertise is religious freedom and religious liberty, right? But or that's our that's our niche, right? Religion, faith, but but that doesn't mean that we can't argue, right? There are all these other considerations as well, you know, science and unchangeable biological, unchangeable biological realities, facts that science has proven that males are this way females females are this way right were those arguments right. included in the brief uh in some way they were yeah i mean we we made the argument that sex is an immutable characteristic and that that's what how congress understood it that's what they intended when they sex discrimination in 1964 they viewed that as something immutable and they were trying to level the again trying to level the playing field between men and women when they included that and i think that there's also a sense in which part of the um what we were saying or and what some people would be saying on this particular case is that the the kinds of arguments that you're talking about that we should be bringing the natural law arguments it makes more sense to bring them in the context of legislation which we do but in the case in a court case they're supposed to just be interpreting the law like what the actual law is and and one of the issues that came up that seems to come up with this is that you can get more nuanced in the back and forth that's involved in trying to push for legislation. There, there, you can, there are compromises, mm-hmm. you know, there are different considerations can be taken. Whereas if they were just to decide this is what title VII means, mm-hmm. then you were going, you're, it's a, you're going to cause major upheaval because you're just like that will have changed. Mm-hmm. You'll have changed the law. <laughs> yeah. Without all of the sorts of 
back and forth without the possibility to make these sorts of arguments. Yeah, and 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 states that have passed laws like this, they have religious carves out, carve outs. You know, they'll exempt religious organizations from bans on um, discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That's one of the things we pointed out in the briefs that we filed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really um, you're you're short circuiting the legislative process. If- I want to ask you a couple questions about the oral arguments, and one is kind of a general question, not even specific to this case, if that's okay. You know, again, I always, I always joke around. I probably say on every single episode of this podcast, like, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know anything. <laughs> but I, I sometimes wonder when I read these things, what is, what is going on in oral arguments? What I'm saying is there are so many briefs. It seems like all of the arguments are laid out already in all of the briefs that get filed and that the justices and with their clerks that they've read and reviewed all of the arguments – so when it get when you get to the day of oral argument, I'm my thinking is, what does the justice not know, but or what are they going to gain from hearing something, you know, just in an in in person exchange? And right. and certainly there is something. So I would like to hear, like, as somebody who's followed this yeah. and been involved in this. I mean, you have worked on. I I go with you down to the Supreme Court to file the briefs. Oh, take me along next time. <laughs> well, that it's not fun. it's not nearly oh, as it, it's okay. just yeah, waiting it's in just line. handing out. No, no, not you just you just hand a box to to a security guard basically, but <laughs> okay. But we but we've talked about this like, you know, you've been involved in a number of briefs, what like between 15 and 20, I think. Um wow. so you you know, you're you followed this for a long time. What what is going on? What are the justices looking for in the oral arguments, it, and what are the parties trying? And to I'm curious—is it broadcast live on television? For some context, uh, not this court. Okay, not this court. Although they do make the transcript available now, and now you can get it the same day. Okay, by one thirty or so, it's posted. Right. At, I'm not exactly sure of the time, but but the same day now they post the transcript of the argument, but they don't release. Uh, I'm not aware of them releasing a recording of the argument. So what's what's going I think one of the things that's going on is that it gives the justices a chance to ask questions. And that and this court is very active in asking questions. They have a new practice now that they just instituted where they allow advocates to go on for at least 2 minutes without interruption, but after those 2 minutes they get pummeled with questions. It almost turns into question answer. So you can't always you don't always find an answer to your specific, as a justice, you may not find an answer to your specific question in a brief. So that's your chance to ask of someone, you know, someone's view or ask them to answer a particular question that you may not, you may be struggling with or you may not have found the answer to in the briefs. It's, a, it's, an, it's an opportunity for an exchange between the justices and the lawyers representing the parties. And sometimes it seems to me like because it's not just a matter of who wins or loses. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the opinions that they write that matter right. and how, how the person or how a party wins or loses. And sometimes they seem like they're kind of trying to work out. They may, they may kind of know which where they're going to yeah. to vote but they're in terms of who wins or loses, but they still are kind of working out, almost thinking out loud. So at least the way yes. when I read the transcript, they almost sometimes come across as like – yeah. They're just thinking out loud about how they're going to write the opinion. Yeah. I don't know if that's 
yeah. you know, if, if that's accurate assessment. Yeah, but. no, I think that's correct. I think they are uh, thinking out loud. I think, uh, and I'm not being cynical when I say this, but I think sometimes they're also trying to influence the other justices on the court by their own questions. Oh, really? Right, yeah. You know, to signal that a theory either works or doesn't work. Yes. Or that there are holes in the theory. Mm. You know, that's a good way to communicate with other justices on oh, the court. Man, I wish we could watch live. That would be <laughs> dramatic. Ooh. You see some of them do seem to kind of be addressing. I thought on this one, if as I recall, it seemed sometimes like Justice Alito and Justice Kagan were indirectly arguing with each other. It was kind of, to me, it was kind of it's kind of interesting to Well, and you... And you, there are people actually watching right in the in mm-hmm. the in the yes. gallery, right? But was, you have to stand in line for hours and hours. You do. Or, it was hard to get in um, on uh, Tuesday. It was very. In fact, I did not get in myself into the courtroom. I got there before seven, and I heard that people that even got there before six in the morning did not get in to the courtroom. I managed to get into the what's called the lawyer's lounge, where the argument is piped in. Yeah, serve coffee and donuts. No, no, and I'm afraid not. No, oh. but they, uh, it's, it's called the lawyer's lounge, and they have uh, <laughs> they pipe in the argument. You can't see anything, but uh, you can hear it. And there were a lot of lawyers in there. A lot of people did not get into the to the courtroom to actually see the argument. I, when you say lawyer's lounge, I just imagine y'all and your like in suits and. <laughs> Kicking wood, back on like, wood paneled <laughs> walls yeah. and comfy chairs. Like it's not a cigar smoke filled room. Then yeah. that's no, it's not that comfortable. There, uh, some of them could have been women. Hardback chairs, maybe. Women suits. I have women cigars, smoking cigars. Yeah, I've yeah, smoked yeah, yeah. a cigar. That's true. Okay, all right. Just want to make sure I'm you know. Not, uh, I'm not sick stereotyping <laughs> here. No, no, no discrimination here. Not in here. Me. Nope, not at all. Well, so how do you think that they went, like, for this case? How do you think the oral arguments went? Do you want to uh, – can you read the tea leaves? How do you think the – how do you think the court's going to rule? Do you want to venture? Uh, yeah, it's hard to predict, um, and any anything I would say here would be uh, strictly a prediction, but uh, I, I feel optimistic having read the briefs, heard the argument, I'm hopeful that there are at least five justices who will go our way. And I th- I would predict that that's well, – I'll go out on a limb and say I, I think it's going to come out that way. Five, four. I think it's going to come out, yeah, where we have at least five on our side. I was a little surprised that the um, liberals on the court were as dug in as they were. I thought there would be greater receptivity to the kinds of arguments our side is making. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we're going to do better than five four, but oh really? It remains to be seen. We we could, you you never know. But um, yeah, is there a time you've ever been surprised, like where you thought, where you were just sure that you knew where some of them were going to go based on the oral argument, and then it surprised you when their vote when actually came, um, came yeah, out and they wrote their opinion. Not with this court, but um, I've I've done oral uh, years ago. I I did some oral arguments in the lower courts. And uh, I had what I thought was a good day, and I lost. And I had what I thought was a bad day, and I won. I mean, it's it's sometimes it's very hard to tell mm-hmm. how it's going to come out just based on an argument. Well, I, I mm. know that you know this has been informative. I know though that y'all have places to go and things to do, so yeah. I won't hold you here any longer. But thank you so much for taking time out to join us. Yeah, thanks, Mike, very much. Thanks to you both. Thanks to you both. Really appreciate it.
And I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Thank you.